From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is a special episode of Battleground Ballot Box. I'm Stephen Fowler. It's been a busy few weeks in two Atlanta courtrooms where the next phase of legal battles are playing out for 19 people accused of a criminal conspiracy to overturn Georgia's election. Some defendants want a speedy trial that could start by the end of October, while others, like former President Donald Trump, want their cases to be separated and on a slower track. Meanwhile, defendants like Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, are arguing their charges should be removed to federal court and dismissed because they can't face prosecution for doing their jobs as federal officials. The questions raised by this rarely used defense could set new legal precedent and further complicate an already complex case. We've got this this broad outline, right? And we've got a we have a pretty good, broad structure and framework for how to analyze these questions, but we don't really know how to how to plug in the facts in that framework. This week, we talked with Georgia State University law professor Anthony Michael Kreiss about Meadows hearing and the slew of motions that marked the latest maneuverings within the election interference case. So I, I got to the federal courthouse bright and early. I think it was about 7.20, 7.25, and that was pushing it even then. So uh, it was it was an early morning for, for me and a handful of my Georgia State colleagues who uh, all decided to get up and go together. Georgia State Law Professor Anthony Michael Kreiss was one of the first people in the room for a major hearing last Monday. Former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' lawyers would face off against the Fulton County DA's office in one of the first legal battles stemming from the 19-person indictment alleging a criminal racketeering conspiracy to reverse Georgia's 2020 election results. The hearing was over a rarely used federal law that would allow Meadows to move his case from Fulton County Superior Court into the Northern District of Georgia Federal Court, and Christ figuratively and literally had a front row seat. It was pretty fascinating. Um, I, I had I had a front row seat, quite literally, um, and it was me, a handful of Georgia State law professors, um, and uh, quarter for the New York Times, and then right next to him, uh, Donald Trump's brand new attorney for his litigation here in Georgia. So we had quite a we had quite an interesting little front row uh, going on there. Um, but it was certainly a, it was a it was a jam packed hearing and, and a lot of folks focusing in on uh, the, the ongoings from all over. I was also at the hearing, but had to sit in an audio only overflow courtroom because of the sheer interest in the case. Behind me sat several lawyers for other defendants in the case, taking notes and making observations about the strengths and weaknesses of the arguments being presented. Unlike the proceedings in Fulton County Superior Court, where a judge said all Trump indictment-related hearings will be televised and streamed on YouTube, federal court does not allow phones or laptops inside. So what exactly was Meadows doing in the federal court Monday? The first thing I think that it's important to highlight is why do we have removal generally? And the idea is that if someone is being sued or uh, there are criminal charges pressed against somebody for something that related to the work as a federal officer, we don't want that to necessarily be in state court because there are a lot of biases and prejudices that might come along in a state court, whether it be state procedures or whether it be state uh, judges who uh, who might be up for re-election, or maybe it's a it's an issue of the jury being a little too focused in one area, and and that would be unfair to the the civil or criminal defendants. 
Meadows is accused of participating in a racketeering conspiracy to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential election and also the crime of solicitation of violation of oath by a public officer. He participated in and helped organize the call between Trump and Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, where the former president pressured Raffensperger to find votes and change the outcome of the 2020 election. There are nearly a dozen so-called overt acts that mention Meadows in the 98-page indictment, including his appearance at a Georgia Bureau of Investigation-led audit of absentee ballot envelope signatures in Cobb County, participation in meetings with lawmakers that sought to overturn results in their home states, and facilitating another call between Trump and a Georgia official, then Chief Elections Investigator Francis Watson. Meadows took observers by surprise when he took the witness stand himself. That allowed him to dispute some of the things prosecutors allege he did as part of a plot to reverse the election results through illegal means, while also making the argument that everything he did was part of his job duties as chief of staff. In order to remove the case to federal court, which could bring about a slightly more conservative jury and be easier to dismiss because of current federal rules, Meadows has to show three things. One, that he was an officer of the United States, Two, that he faces charges stemming from actions committed under that office. And three, that he raises a, quote, colorable federal offense. As Christ says, We really have to decide whether or not Mark Meadows and some of these other folks were agents or officers or employees of the federal government and whether the conduct that they were engaged in that is part of the indictment from Fawny Willis here in Fulton County, whether that conduct was so related or or tethered to their job that we we don't want it to be in state court because it really ties in federal issues. There's no denying that Meadows, as chief of staff to the president of the United States, was a federal officer. But what about the other prongs? Uh, Mark Meadows argued that there's a lot of different things that the chief of staff does in his official capacity in order to serve the president of the United States. That includes um, arranging meetings it includes getting contact information. It includes dropping in on meetings in order to just be somewhat aware of what the president is up to. It also means dropping in on meetings in order to you know, wrestle the president away and keep him on schedule. And it also means, to some degree, fielding a lot of responses or a lot of inquiries or a lot of requests and acting as a gatekeeper to try to keep certain folks away from the president and and channel the important people that the president needs to talk to um you know in a in a kind of effective way and make sure information that needs to get before the president gets before the president that's a lot of different things and if you take it from a very broad perspective right and 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 talk about it in that very general sense then all of the things that Mark Meadows did um in you know or alleged that were allegedly criminal in Georgia could be arguably part of his duties. Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Take one of the, quote, overt acts that includes a meeting between Trump, his lawyers, and Pennsylvania legislators to discuss ways to overturn that state's results. Meadows told the court his only involvement was telling some of the people present they had to leave because they tested positive for the coronavirus. 
He also stressed his job as one of gatekeeping the time and attention of Trump, saying, quote, there was a time where I felt like my phone number was plastered on every bathroom wall in America and that the issue of Georgia's election results in particular was, quote, consuming the president's time and thoughts, getting in the way of handling the peaceful transfer of power to then-president-elect Joe Biden. So what the judge has to consider with analyzing the call, for example, is things like this. Was he engaging in just, you know, kind of putting two people together who want, who wanted to talk together? Or was he coordinating with campaign officials and furthering an interest of the Donald Trump for president campaign and not really doing something that was in the interest of the federal government? That's where all this fight is, because if, if you take it from the broadest level of abstraction, all of the things that he did were arguably parts of things that the chief of staff would, would, would be doing um, as, as chief of staff. But if you look at it from a more narrow perspective, exactly who was he talking to and when and why, um, you know, then it gets a little bit more dicey because there's certainly, um, you know, a lot of things that that Mark Meadows did, which is arguably unlawful in, in the sense that it that federal employees cannot engage in partisan electioneering. And so that might be outside the scope of his duties. But there are certain things that Mark Meadows did, which, you know, don't necessarily, you know, scream, oh, criminal per se. On the DA's side, lawyers there argue Meadows' actions were part of an illegal conspiracy that weren't part of his job duties because they were political in nature, seeking to reverse an election outcome and not protected by federal law. With every act that they alleged was part of an unlawful scheme, the DA's office asked Meadows, what federal interest did you advance? What federal interest was there um, when you did these things? And if there was a federal interest, what kinds of actions did you take that reassure us that, it, that there is a federal interest? Prosecutors also allege Meadows' actions violate the Hatch Act. Mark Meadows is barred um, by federal law from engaging in electioneering and, and partisan activities that, that deal with campaigns. And so federal law says that that's not consistent with what uh, the, you know, or, or is not consistent with the duties of of the chief of staff or any employee of the federal government. And so there was a big question there, right? What was the federal interest? Were you really, um, you know, were, were you really engaged in something that you were permitted or authorized to do? They also argue Meadows' varying efforts, such as showing up unannounced to a GBI-led audit of absentee ballot envelopes in Cobb County, organizing a call between Trump and Chief Investigator Francis Watson, and the Trump-Raffensperger call were all done outside of his responsibilities as Chief of Staff, and that there was no federal authority behind these activities, ergo the case should stay in state court. Questioning also zeroed in on Meadows' use of we in phone calls, text messages, and emails about activities related to Trump's re-election campaign and efforts to reverse his defeat, though Meadows claimed it was a deferential colloquialism and not indicative of any coordination or allegiance to the campaign. Christ says there are difficult questions Judge Steve Jones will have to wrangle with when deciding what to do about Meadows and at least four other defendants that have filed removal notices and it's just the tip of the iceberg when considering the larger racketeering case. There's a lot of mess here. So I, I, um, I, I think that it's there's precedent out there, and this is not the most rarest of proceedings ever, but it's particularly rare in this context. And the other quirk that makes it more difficult is Georgia Rico, because unlike other 
potential criminal acts, which are dis- which might get charged as discrete acts of or of criminality. Georgia RICO and conspiracy law generally includes a lot of acts that may not necessarily be on their own criminal. Um, they only become criminal in the broader context of of how they have how they're used. So that might also complicate things because in the Mark Meadows example, there may be a lot of things that he did that were outside of his prerogative as chief of staff and therefore not covered um, necessarily by this this kind of removal protection. But there might be other things that are entirely reasonable uh, to say were part of his job, like dropping in on a meeting unexpectedly, for example. So it's it's not, uh, you know, I think it's a complicated issue. I think it's it's something that's, you know, unique in many ways because of it being a criminal law issue and because it's a Georgia Rico issue. Um, I don't envy Judge Jones. It's going to be a very difficult case. And I think folks who think it's a really easy decision one way or the other, um, you know, I, I think that they might be a little reductive in their analysis. Beyond the big questions over removal, many of the defendants have submitted arraignment waivers ahead of the scheduled court date September 6th. Unsurprisingly, they plead not guilty, and unsurprisingly, that includes Donald Trump. But there are other pressing petitions on the court docket, like requests for speedy trial, determining who gets tried together and who is separated from the rest, and more that Fulton County Judge Scott McAfee will have to deal with. We know that we have at least two, perhaps a few more, um, of these speedy trial requests. And so those folks certainly, it, you know, by all accounts, will, will go first, barring um, barring some, you know, overriding reason, um, or I should say perhaps all of those defendants might go together, barring some overriding reason to, to sever them. And of course, then we have this interaction with, with the removal cases. And so who knows how that really plays out. Um, what we can say is that this is going to be the first and most important threshold matter for Judge McAfee to, to decide, right, is to is to determine um, who has the better arguments over whether certain defendants should get severed or whether certain defendants should go all together in the fall. Um, and how does that all work out? Judge McAfee has the ultimate decision to really set his calendar. In fact, by the time you listen to this episode, there will probably be new filings and rulings that replace what we've already talked about. But that's why you'll have to stay tuned and keep listening to the show. On the next episode of Battleground Ballot Box, Donald Trump and his allies have seized on an effort by a fringe freshman lawmaker seeking to call a special legislative session to punish the prosecutor who charged the former president. Highly respected Georgia State Senator Colton Moore deserves thanks and congratulations of everyone for having the courage and conviction to fight the radical left lunatics who are so badly hurting the great state of Georgia and, frankly, the USA itself. Governor Brian Kemp and other top Republicans pushed back. The bottom line is that in the state of Georgia, as long as I'm governor, we're going to follow the law and the Constitution, regardless of who it helps or harms politically. We look at further fallout from the indictments that have deepened the divide between a small but crucial part of the GOP electorate and those in charge. Battleground Ballot Box is a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting and is produced by Chase McGee. Our engineer is Jake Cook, our editor is Josephine Bennett, and the theme music was created by me, Stephen Fowler. Subscribe to our show at gpb.org slash battleground or anywhere you get podcasts.